Hello and welcome to Cumber Baptist Church Podcast. The following is taken from our morning service, Sunday 22nd of December, 2019. This morning we are joined by Pastor Clifford Morrison, who takes his reading from Luke, chapter 2, verses 1 to 14 and brings us a message entitled, The Challenge of Christmas. Let's turn to the Gospel of Luke, please. The Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2. In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger, because there was no room, there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen as it had been told them. And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. How we thank God for his word and for this wonderful story. The dictionary defines the word challenge in a number of ways. A spirit of competitiveness in a sporting context. It's also defined in a military context as the call of a guard to the approaching enemy. Challenge in the Christian context has been defined as God's call for our response. And God uses a number of means to challenge us. We think this morning of the challenge of the Scriptures. 
The writer in Hebrews 4 tells us that the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. And all of us have experienced the penetrating, piercing, probing power of the word of the living God. But not only do we have the challenge of the scriptures, we have the challenge of the Spirit, the function of the Holy Spirit in the world today, according to the Lord Jesus in John 16, is, con- is to convince men and women of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Not only have we the challenge of the Scriptures and the challenge of the Spirit, we have the challenge of the saints. Christian people are to witness to Christ and to challenge a sinful world with the fact that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, has come. We are to be salt that has not lost its savor. We are to be light that is not placed under a bushel but on a candlestick. We are to be like a city that is set upon a hill. Men and women are to see our good works and glorify our Father who is in heaven. But as I thought about the challenge of the Scriptures and the challenge of the Spirit and the challenge of the saints, I thought in approaching this message this morning about the challenge of the season. The challenge of the season. No thoughtful person can think through the calendar year without being challenged at this time of the year. So I want us to think for a few moments this morning about the challenge of Christmas. I want you to put the turkey out of your mind, the Brussels sprouts and the stuffing and the present that you haven't got yet for that one who's very awkward because you couldn't buy for him. I belong to that category, so I can say it authoritatively this morning. Let's put all these things out of mind this morning. And let's think about the challenge of Christmas. Focusing our attention upon the scriptures that we have read together and the gospel account that comes to us from Luke, the beloved physician. Let's examine this morning, first of all, what I'm calling the circumstances of Christmas. On that eventful night when the angels sang, when they brought this wonderful message, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And one cannot help in examining the circumstances that surrounded the birth of Christ without being impressed by the reality of the supernatural. It's one of those occasions when you've got to step back and you've got to say, wow. We tend to lose the wow factor that is so central to the story of the Incarnation. You see, as we examine the circumstances of Christmas, we note that Christmas... And the message of Christmas is all about a divine performance. God is at work. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And if you and I, and we do, accept the Bible to be the Word of God, we're obliged to believe in the supernatural birth of Jesus Christ. I've said it before, the process of his birth was natural, but the conception was divine. 
the seed of the woman was united by the Spirit with the holy life of God the Father to produce the incarnate Son of God. And Dr. Luke, the beloved physician, records this sublime mystery in this way. The Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. What a challenge to our hearts. No one can ignore a person who was born into the world in this unique way. The circumstances of Christmas stress the divine. There's a divine performance. God is at work. But not only is there a divine performance, there is what we might call this morning divine providence. The word of the Lord is that unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Have you ever considered the timing of the circumstances that surrounded the birth of Christ? The whole event speaks of a supernatural overruling providence. According to historians, this was the very first census of its kind. And little did Caesar Augustus know that he was being used as an instrument for bringing about the birth of Christ at the right time and in the right place. Joseph and Mary lived in Nazareth, but in spite of Mary's condition, the census required a journey to their ancestral home in Bethlehem. And in addition to this unusual course of events, the whole world had been prepared for the coming of Christ. And no other generation could, have, could his birth have been more timely. If you recall your days at school and reading and studying Shakespeare, you'll know that it was Shakespeare who said, There is a tide in the affairs of men. And we might add that in the tide of God's affairs, this was the right moment for the coming of the Christ child into human history. God is never behind. God is never ahead. God is always on time. And as we unwrap the circumstances of Christmas, we see a, a divine performance, we see a divine providence, and we see also a divine prophecy. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Did you know that out of the 333 prophecies in the Old Testament concerning the first advent of our Lord, many were fulfilled at his birth? This is the one of whom the prophet spoke. This is one of the greatest proofs that the Bible we have in our hand is what it claims to be, the Word of God, the infallible, the inspired, the unerring Word of God. Wise men came to the palace, to the palace of Herod, asking for the newborn king. The scribes emphatically declared that Christ would be born in Bethlehem of Judea, fulfilling the prophecy of Micah 5 and verse 2. But you, Bethlehem, Though you are small among the thousands of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, from everlasting to everlasting. His birth was not an accident. 
His birth didn't take place because of chance. His birth was the outcome of a divine plan originating in the heart of God. It was Matthew Henry who said it was part of God's plan. The God who took a motherless woman out of the side of Adam took a fatherless child out of the body of a woman. It's worth examining the circumstances of Christmas to see the divine performance, to see the divine providence, uh, to see also the divine prophecy. But this story will not allow us to stay at the challenge of Christmas that we've examined. This story allows us to expose the crime of Christmas. She brought forth her firstborn. She wrapped him in swaddling cloth. She laid him in a manger because there was no room for them. There was no place for them in the inn. When Joseph and Mary arrived at the wayside inn and requested accommodation for the night, they were told there was no room. And the innkeeper's refusal to take in these weary travelers has been the crime throughout the centuries. Who's going to play Joseph in the nativity play? Who are we going to go? Who are we going to get to open the door and say, no room, no room? His attitude, his action symbolize certain things that you and I can be easily guilty of. You see, when you think of this statement that is recorded for us throughout the course of history, we see in it the sin of woeful ignorance. There was no room for them in the inn. And the innkeeper is without excuse for his ignorance concerning this tremendous event. The same God who rewarded the anticipation of the shepherds, the investigation of the wise men, and the expectation of Simeon and Anna could have satisfied this innkeeper long ago. He was without excuse. We live in an age when the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ can be heard and read through every known means of communication. God has revealed himself in creation. Creation displays the power of God. There is glory all around. God reveals himself in circumstances. Little as much when God is in it. But God ultimately has revealed himself in his son, Jesus Christ. And yet there is an appalling ignorance of what God has accomplished in Christ for the salvation of the world. I was saying this morning in the prayer meeting before the service that in a school recently, children were asked, whose birthday are we celebrating at Christmas? And this little boy put his hand up and with enthusiasm in his voice and a sparkle in his eye, he said, Santa's, can you blame him? Not really. Will you listen to the media? When you look into shop windows? When people are no longer greeting one another with happy Christmas, but rather happy holidays? No room for him in the inn, in spite of all that God has done by way of revelation. 
everywhere we are reminded that God sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. And so there is no excuse for ignorance. But not only was there the sin of woeful ignorance, there was the sin of willful indifference. There was no room for them in the end because they were so busy with other things. There was no excuse for the innkeeper to be indifferent to the needs of this weary traveler. What did he not understand about Mary's condition? It had been so obvious, wouldn't it, that here was a young couple who had walked quite a few miles. Here was a young woman who was heavily pregnant. And her condition called for tender care and helpful consideration. But he was indifferent to all of this. And how typical this is of so many in our day and generation. The Bible tells us that in Christ and in Christ alone, all other gifts are mediated to a world in need. Paul says, God, who spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him freely give us all things? It's all in Christ. And not to receive Christ is to despise every other gift that comes through Christ The theologians talk about common grace. Every creature of Adam this morning enjoys common grace. What is common grace? Health, strength, eyes to see, ears to hear. A mobility that allows us to move from one place to another. Appetites that allow us to enjoy food. This is common grace. It is defined as the goodness of God. And Paul says that the goodness of God leads us to a certain thing. What does it lead us to? To repentance and to faith in the Lord Jesus. But alongside this woeful ignorance, there is willful indifference. And of course, thirdly, there was the sin of worldly involvement. There was no room for them in the end. Undoubtedly, this innkeeper refused Joseph and Mary because he was too busy. The census of Caesar Augustus was a good thing in its way. It filled his house with guests and his pockets with money. And to have welcomed this couple would have meant turning out two of his other guests, and he wasn't about to do that. I wonder, did he refuse these travelers a room because they didn't look the part. They were poor, dressed shabbily. Maybe if Joseph and Mary had been able to hold up a purse of gold, if they had produced their gold card, that might have made a difference. And how true that can be in our world this morning. Men and women far too busy with worldly involvement. Maybe they know that if Christ were to come into their lives, certain things will have to go. Do you know why men and women are not converted today? And if you're here this morning and you're not converted, do you know why you're not converted? You're not converted because you love your sin more than you love your Savior. That sin may be obvious sin, the sin of blatant unrighteousness. But it could be a more subtle sin. It could be the sin of self-righteousness. A sin that says, I'm all right the way I am. To the natural eye and to the worldly mind, 
It didn't seem such a big deal in saying no to this young couple. It didn't appear to be of any great consequences. We need to be very careful that our involvement in other things does not keep us from being in the place where God wants us to be and doing the things that God wants us to do. The story is told of two women who were enjoying an elaborate meal in a downtown restaurant. When asked about the occasion for the luncheon, one said, we're celebrating the baby's birthday. And the inquirer thought for a moment, and then he said, where is the baby? For there was no child to be seen. Oh, said the mother, you didn't think I'd bring him here, did you? Why, he doesn't know anything about it. And this is true this morning to say that many will celebrate the birth of the Savior and forget to invite him. In our rush of observing Christmas with giving and eating, how we need to really stop to think about the Christ child who should be the center of, all, center of it all. The hymn that we sung with great regularity in the context of a gospel sermon was that old hymn, Have You Any Room for Jesus? I remember singing it lustily as a boy. Love to sing those hymns, still do. We often sang it within the context of appealing to the unconverted for a response to the gospel. I've often thought it's a hymn that I need to sing to myself. Room for pleasure. Room for business. But for Christ the crucified, not a place that he can enter in the heart for which he died. And so we have here this morning the circumstances of Christmas. There was a divine performance. There was a divine providence. There was a divine prophecy. We thought about the crime of Christmas. There was the sin of woeful ignorance. There was the sin of willful indifference. There was the sin of worldly involvement. As I close, what about the, the claims of Christmas? What claim does Christmas have in my life? You see, we could easily be dragged into a worldly mentality. I've often thought of the translation in J.B. Phillips of Romans 12. Do not let the world squeeze you into its mold. And that's so appropriate, I feel, at this season of the year. That we as believers can allow the world to mold our thinking and to shape our wills and our thoughts regarding this season. Unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this spells out God's claim upon every life. The names and titles of our Lord were carefully chosen in order that we might understand from the very beginning that Jesus Christ came into the world to claim a people for his name. And we see this morning that it's a saving claim upon our lives. You see, he gave us what we need. When Henry opened the cracker, 
So often inside the cracker there are things that we don't really need. Why is it that when I pull a cracker, I always finish up with a comb? Don't laugh, it's not funny. You know, you get things in the cracker. What is this all about? You know? Stories that are totally irrelevant. What's wobbling in a pram? A jelly baby. Oh dear. Okay. We save them from one year to the other. Totally irrelevant things. But when God provided for us a saviour, how relevant he was. One who has a saving claim upon our life. This is our greatest need. And there is a sense in which men and women have everything but a saviour. You know, the wee boy crying, what do you want? I don't know what I want, but I'm not happy until I get it. That's our world this morning. And we can easily allow that world to invade our world. And we become discontented. A saviour has been born. A saviour from all sin. And what we need this morning is not just a message or a way of worship or even a standard of living. We need a saviour. If a man is drowning, he needs more than a voice that tells him, you know, you're drowning. Did you know that you're drowning? He needs more than someone throwing a book of instructions on how to swim. Six easy lessons on how to swim. He needs someone to rescue him. To come where he is and to do for him what he cannot do for himself. And that's what we have in the child that was born and in the son that was come. We have a saviour. Not only have we a saviour, but a saviour who has a spiritual claim in our lives. A saviour who is Christ. The title means the anointed one. It's a term which marks him out as the prophet, the priest, and the king upon whom the Holy Spirit came without measure and emphasized the truth that God's claim upon our lives is a spiritual one. You see, we're more than body and soul. We're spiritual beings. That's why wherever you go in the universe, if you go and reach an unreached tribe, I guarantee you'll reach a tribe that's worshiping. They're worshipping gods of their own making. But they're worshipping. What are the gods today? Well, the sport. One of the greatest gods today that's destroying men and having the wrong effect upon Christian sport. We can worship ourselves. The most popular photo that's taken today is what is called a selfie. You ever heard of it? Sport. Ourselves. Our substance. And we fail to heed the words of the Lord Jesus. A man cannot live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. He has a saving claim. He has a spiritual claim in my life. He has a sovereign claim. A saviour who is Christ the Lord. You know, the world in which we live will never be put right until Jesus Christ reigns as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And what is true of the world generally is also true of the individual personally. Your life and my life will never know purpose and peace or power until Christ reigns with unchallenged sovereignty. He was born to be Lord. That's what this verse says and means. Unto us is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. You see, there's a, 
a strange doctrine. It's an error that's been propagated for many years now. That when we become Christians, Jesus Christ is Savior. And then if we want to be enthusiastic Christians, real spiritual Christians, he becomes Lord. That's not the gospel. The gospel is believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. He was born to be Lord. He died that he might be Lord. He rose again that he might be Lord. In other words, the full purpose of the Advent is that God might reign in our hearts through his beloved Son, by his Spirit, as Lord. So here we have it. The challenge of Christmas. The challenge as seen in the circumstances surrounding his birth. The challenge that is seen in the great crime of rejecting Christ. And the challenge that is seen in the claims of Christ in our lives. Someone has said this, and I think it's so true. We are in great danger of knowing the price of everything and the value of nothing. And so we pray that God, by his gracious Holy Spirit, will impress upon our hearts the true meaning of Christmas and the value of responding to the unconditional claims of Jesus Christ in our hearts and in our lives. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Father, these verses in this story is so familiar to all of us this morning, maybe. Some of us have childhood memories of those who read this story and told this story to us within the context of our homes and families, within the context of our Sunday school and church upbringing. We pray that this story may not just be a story of unrelated happenings, but we pray that we might receive it as the very Word of God. And may the child that was born and the son that was given rule and reign in our hearts and in our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name and for Christ's sake. Amen.